4: Talk. Hello, I'm Blake Smith, and in today's special bonus episode of Monster Talk, Ben Radford and I interview a movie director, and then I get a weird phone call from Scott Sigler. Information about the new movie, and about Scott Sigler's book, are in the show notes. Monster Talk. We're talking with Daniel Netheim, director of the new film, The Hunter, which is adapted from the award-winning novel by Alice Addison. The film stars Willem Dafoe and Sam Neill, and it tells the story of a man tasked with finding the last living thylacine, if it exists. So, uh, Daniel, what drew you to the thylacine as a film topic?
2: So the whole project came from a novel. As you know, the thylacine has a particular place in Australian mythology, um, as well as in Australian history. You know, It's one of those rare beasts that kind of straddles both. Um, Um, as a child, you know, as an adult, I'd always found the story of the demise of this creature particularly moving. And I'd always been affected by that, you know, those bits of footage that, that are quite well known. You can see them on YouTube. You know, we got the rights to use them in the film that the last living Tasmanian tiger roaming round and round in circles in the Hobart zoo. Right. Uh, right. I'd always found that very poignant, but what I liked What I liked about the use of this creature uh, as the object of a mission in the book was, you know, both symbolic um, uh, and physical, you know. Like, uh, on a literal level, it represents the search for something unobtainable, you know, something that can't be found. Um, And symbolically, it represents very strongly the... The mistakes of our past, the, the things that we can't undo, you know, and both of these are, are kind of very lead to a very poignant um, uh, and profound character journey for the late, lead character played in the film by Willem. Mm-hmm.
1: Cool. Let me ask uh, how uh, I know I have, I've covered film quite a bit uh, also at the Toronto. And uh, by the way, as I mentioned in Toronto Film Festival, congratulations on your success there. Thanks. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, look,
2: it was great. We, we'd only just finished the film. We were invited to screen as a special, special presentation at Toronto. Um, uh, and you know, within the first couple of days, we had uh, amazing international sales. You know? So selling to Magnolia in the US was, was great, but we sold to a good you know, 25, 30 countries apart from that. So just you know, it's very exciting to know that the film is going to
1: reach such wide audiences. And, and we're, it's, it's opening uh, nationwide, uh, what, this weekend, next weekend? What's, what's the official? A- April
2: 6th for theatrical, and it it's, has a, a premium VOD window that's already started. So depending on your choice, you can look at it now on the small screen, or April 6th, you can see it the way the filmmakers would prefer you to see it, you know, <laughs> on, the, on the big screen with amazing 5.1 Dolby surround sound. Cool. Beautiful, beautiful.
4: <laughs> now, now, a lot of the shots look really stunning. Where was the footage actually taken?
2: The film was shot entirely in Tasmania, which is a large island state off the south coast of mainland Australia. Um, we It's a small island. We spent a bit of time in the north, a bit of time in the south, a bit of time in the center. Um a couple of weeks we spent in and around a small farmhouse, but for most of the time we were going out to, driving out to pretty remote but spectacular-looking landscapes to tell the story of this man who, for a lot of the film, um, is essentially alone in the spectacular wilderness looking for this elusive creature. What, what, what did it take to bring this to the big screen? The, the film was financed um, out of Australia. We have a different system over there with, there's you know, A certain amount can be subsidized by government grants. But you still have to have interest from distributors, you know, both local distributors and foreign sales agents. And the one recurring question that we were getting when we were touting the script around, I mean, everyone was saying, this is a beautiful story. You know, it's a great script. It's really, really well written. It's very cinematic. But who is going to play the hunter? Right. And, And it was only once we could say Willem Dafoe is the hunter that we could see people's eyes light up and go, all right, okay, I get this movie now. I know the kind of film you want to make, you know, great casting. And so the, in the end, it was the casting of Willem that triggered the final pieces of the puzzle.
1: And how did you end up getting, uh, uh, to do that? Did you, did you know him personally or just sort of, uh, uh, uh,
2: amazingly, we, we sent him the script. Um, but you know, we sent the script to his management company and, um, We got a pretty prompt reply saying that Willem had liked it. You know, he was intrigued. He wanted to know more. So I flew from Sydney to New York to have a face-to-face meeting. Uh, And at the end of an hour of of talking about the project, he pretty much said, get your people to talk to my people. Let's do Let's Let's make this. Um, Beautiful. Nice. I I didn't think it would be that easy and it probably never will be again. But, you know, thank goodness.
4: You know, we talk about movies a lot uh, Mm -hmm. because there's so many that deal with monsters. And in this particular case, it's nice to talk to the director and I could ask this question directly. Um, When you shoot the film or when you shot this film, what what did you think of the theme or what did you think the theme would be? And and how much did that drive the way you actually produced or actually put it all together?
2: Yeah, look, you know... uh I mean, for me, the best film works on many levels. There's a story, you know, which is what you watch and enjoy and what you follow. And then I really like to have layers of thematic resonance underneath. So, you know, you want to to get the audience thinking about things that are important to you. I mean, I think in this case the strong theme was the uneasy relationship between mankind and the natural environment. You know, and on the one hand, the the history of what actually happened to the Tasmanian tiger uh, speaks of that, you know, this... The thing was wiped out by farmers. It had a government bounty on its head because it was seen as a threat to the industry of sheep farming, you know, simple as that. Boom, kiss goodbye the thylacine. Um, the same story is is being repeated in Tasmania with certain areas of, of old-growth forest, you know, which is under threat from logging. So the story hasn't gone away, you know, and the, the ever-present theme there is, is kind of like, how the greed, how our greed in pursuing what we think we need, can affect the natural environment around us. But you know what? I'm, I was never setting out to make a message film. You know, the idea was we tell a great story first, but you have these layers. You know, you hint at this thematic stuff um, uh, underneath, and hope that the audience carries something away with it.
1: No, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that is that uh, it's not a message film. It's not – It's and it's, frankly, to be honest, it's not even a monster film. It's a, <laughs> it's a thriller that has a, has sort of a monster in it. And that's one of the things I really enjoyed about it is that it has themes about ecology and environmentalism, but it's not cut and dried. You know, you have – meaning the characters have unclear motives and you have sort of moral shades of gray you've got loggers who are concerned about the impact of their livelihood if the animal is proven to exist you know are they going to suddenly declare all this you know off, off limits but then you also have people who are ostensibly trying to help the animal but also kill it so that that was sort of, it, it was just really interesting to see characters that, that had such such nuances yeah certainly the moral
2: compl- the moral complexity of the story was one of the things i found really attractive Maybe one of the things that, that made it difficult to get the script right, you know, because it was a difficult balance to tread.
1: You know, I'm glad you think it's worked. Thank you. Yeah, in fact, let me, let me also ask about this. The, the, uh, one of the concerns um, that, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but on occasion I've heard directors concern that their film is too cerebral. It's too. It takes too much thinking, and American audiences don't like thinking. And um, and because it, it is, it's not a straightforward action film. It's not a straightforward monster film. And it, it, it raises really profound, interesting questions. And and I guess my question to you is, how do you balance making an entertaining action film uh, that also you know, has is also slows down enough so that people can 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 have these these you know larger uh, questions resonate. Look, you know, we,
2: we, we worked hard to find that balance when we were writing the script and then we worked hard all over again when we were in the edit room, um, mm-hmm. you know. And I think we tried, you know, we pushed the film to both extremes during the cut. I mean, sometimes uh, I looked at it and it had gotten too meditative and too slow and the story wasn't moving forwards. And at other, at other times we tried things and suddenly, you know, it's moving at a great breakneck pace but mm-hmm. you're missing out on the poetry, And I wanted to contain both, (laughs) Um, so really, you know, I mean, part of that was actually getting getting small audiences in during the edit, showing Mm -hmm. the film fresh, and just asking them, you know, is it too slow? Is it too fast? You know, are are your questions being answered, or are you happy to have questions that remain unanswered? Right. You, You lose. It's really easy to lose. Perspective when you're stuck when you hold up in an edit room for like fourteen weeks, you know. <laughs> i the the, the, the the outside perspective becomes really important.
4: Do you uh, you know, there's sort of this underlying theme of um, a national loss at this animal being extinct. Mm-hmm. Is is there is is that culturally? I don't, you know, not being from there. Is it is that the sort of thing that that the opportunity to save one of these animals would sort of in a way uh, be a kind of redemption or or is that, is that, am I reading too much into that?
2: No, uh, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, if we could revive this creature, it would be, it would be a form of redemption. You know, we would be able to shed ourselves of that guilt, you know, correct the mistakes of our past. I mean, I think that was one of the, the big attractions of this, um, you know, now derailed attempt to clone the creature that was happening a few years back where Mm -hmm. they had DNA extracted from the specimen of a pup that had been sitting in formaldehyde at a museum for like, you know, 70 years. Um, And they thought that they could crossbreed this with something else. And, you know, I mean, it was a dubious project that had ethicists up in arms, but there are a lot of people prepared to put a lot of money into it because it was a sexy topic, you know, reviving an extinct species.
0: Dot com, And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the
3: weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure
4: of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness,
0: Philosophy,
1: Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so
3: join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram,
4: TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon.
2: Um, you know, for better or for worse, the DNA that they had was proven to be too deteriorated to be any use and that project is dropped but you know <laughs> the i can see why the enduring mythology that it is still out there is attractive you know for the same reasons it offers us a hope of redemption but it's also dangerous because it lets us off the hook you know for for facing up to the reality of what we did and and what people all over the world are still doing which is kind of Killing off endangered species.
4: I don't want to spoil anything for uh, the listeners because obviously mysteries are kind of what drives you to go see a film in a way. But there's this ongoing debate in, in, in the cryptozoology world about capture or kill. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if, if for example with Bigfoot, would you want to capture or kill one even though they might be endangered if they're real? Now, uh, you know, our position is I think, you know, get the DNA, prove it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, how did you deal with that in the film?
2: One of the great experiences for an audience of watching this film is not knowing. Like, you know, what if he finds it. What's he going to do? In fact, right. is he even going to find it, or is it a completely unattainable goal? Um, and I think it's a great, it's a great driving narrative question to have. And I think everybody has their own take on it. I mean, when we were shooting down in Tasmania, we were shooting a lot of behind the scenes footage, and we we interviewed most of the locals we met about the thylacine. You know, do you think it still exists? Do you have any stories? What would you do if you saw one? The majority of the people, no matter what they believed, said that if they found one, they wouldn't tell, you know, they they would leave it alone. They wouldn't tell anybody ever. Hmm. So, you know, it seems to be some kind of like, you know, profound, innate compassion. Like, if the thing's still out there, leave it alone. I mean, if a logger saw one, you know, as you mentioned before, they're not going to tell anybody because it would mean suddenly you've got half the world's scientific community traipsing around the areas. They're meant to be, you know, chopping down trees.
1: Right. Um,
2: you know, likewise, if an environmentalist saw one, it's not in their interest to tell anybody because you get half the world's journalists up there, you know, treading all over the the, the the delicate ecosystem. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very open for debate. What would you do? I, I, I recommend to the viewers... See the film with a friend,
1: and then have the debate yourselves afterwards. And put you on the spot. What would you do if, if, if while you were out filming this this fictional <laughs> this fictional film, and yeah. you're just wandering around on location, and you 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 you, you re, by now you're familiar with the thylacine, you, you've you know seen hours of footage, and yeah. you just happen to look to your right and you see something that is almost certainly a thylacine. What uh, what would you do? You know what?
2: I would take the camera off Willem Dafoe. I'd point it at that, that thylacine <laughs> in the bush, and I would exploit—I would exploit it for publicity for the film for all it was worth.
1: <laughs> so
2: you would shoot, but
4: not necessarily kill. Got it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> shoot, but not kill. Well, that's no—it's interesting, it, and it brings up—and that—that's another element that I really enjoyed about the film is uh, there's this. Um, not only do you have sort of a mystery within a mystery, uh, sort of within a mystery, depending on how you want to shake it out, but you also have uh, conspiracy theories um, in it, you know, where, where again, you're not sure who, what are people's motives. Why are, you know, what's it, because, you know, pe- you know are, are they doing this to exploit the creature? Or are you doing it to save the creature? Uh, and really, at the end of the day, doesn't matter. I mean, if, you, if what you have truly is the very last animal, Mm. of of its kind mm. uh in a way it doesn't really matter i mean whether you whether it dies on its own because it you know falls into a river or it's shot one way or the other whether it's tomorrow or next month or next year or five years from now mm. it, it, it it will die and there will be no more um so it's sort of interesting to sort of have that 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 for enveloping mystery and and, and uh intention there
2: yeah yeah very true you know like a, a number of times people have who have seen the film You know, and this doesn't give anything away, but have said to me, All right, so so this guy is looking for the last, what is meant to be the last Tasmanian tiger, but that's ridiculous. If there's one, surely there are others, you know, surely there's a breeding population. Um and my answer to that is, you know, as you said, at one point, I mean, the last known Tasmanian tiger died in captivity in 1936. At one point, there was going to be only one left out there somewhere in the wilderness, you know, and that was the last one. Um, uh, how long it, it lasted on its own, I don't know. We can only speculate. But yeah, what you say is true, you know, like once the population gets below a critical mass, it's going to die out regardless. So what do you do? Do you, if you want to stop people from getting it, <laughs> you want to stop people using it for, 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 for whether for good or bad, you know, there's, there's, profoundly confronting moral choices to be made.
4: Well Daniel thanks for being with us today. I know you have to go, but we always ask our guests what their favorite monster is. It's kind of our closer question.
2: Um that that is a great question, one that I'm not
1: quite prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> like it could be anything. It could be any any monster, either fictional, real, allegedly real, whatever you want.
2: Well, I'm I'm really always attracted to this notion of the giant squid nice yeah um, you know this I mean I think that the, the the depths of the ocean have got such great potential for you know deep dark murky secrets but the idea of this you know th- th- these giant squids who can kind of you know do battle with sperm whales I mean I find that really Something very attractive about that notion, you know, and um, and always sparked on by the fact that occasionally these things get washed up in remote places. You know, I mean, for me, that's fascinating.
4: Yeah. One of the experts is Steve O'Shea, who's from down there. So, yeah.
1: All right. OK, great.
4: Anyway, thank you so much for your time.
1: Talk to you. Good Good job on, a, on an excellent film and good luck with it. Thank you so much.
4: Monster dog. are you there? Hello? Who is hey, this? Hey, Blake,
3: this is Scott Sigler.
4: Scott Sigler? Why, dude, it's like three in the morning. Why are you calling me?
3: Listen, I've got an idea. I've got my new book, Nocturnal, is out, and it's about monsters, so I thought we should talk about it on Monster Talk.
4: Yeah, yeah but dude, it's it's three in the morning. What, what kind of monsters?
3: Like, okay, here's the thing, right? It's basically skeptical horror, so it's about monsters, but it's not about all the BS monsters like vampires and walking dead and all that other stuff. These are like hard science monsters. Okay. And they're all original monsters. I'm telling you, this is skeptical horror. This is a perfect for your show. You got to put it on.
4: Um, well, he, what, it's called nocturnal.
3: Yeah, it's called nocturnal and it's uh, in bookstores right now, right now. You people could go look at it at scottsigler.com nocturnal, where we have a video trailer of the book that is full of, you guessed it, Monsters, that's right.
4: You've got a video of the book?
3: We've got a book trailer, so we've got a video that shows what the book is about. It's full of all these monsters that are in San Francisco, because this, uh, this subset of humanity is living in the shadows of San Francisco and only comes out at night to feed on the people who won't be missed. But in the book, my main character, Brian Clouser, starts to have all these crazy dreams about these monsters and then starts to track down this serial-killing cult that dresses up like monsters. And there's other stuff I, you know, I can't reveal because maybe you'll read it. But look, no vampires, no mummies, no, no zombies, no walking dead. These are straight up hard science monsters. And and this book has the best Punnett Square your people will ever see because now there's not just two sex chromosomes. There's three. It's a nine square Punnett Square as a feature point of the book.
4: That's a lot of math for 3 in the morning.
3: Hey, what, did you
4: say it's got cops in it, so this is not a sports book?
3: No, this is like a, starts out like a police procedural, and then uh, Brian Klauser and Pookie Chang, are two San Francisco homicide inspectors, start to get on the path of these kids who are being killed and all of these teenage kids are bullies of a young man named Rex DeProvdichuk. So it's almost like a twisted Harry Potter-esque type story where Rex is bullied and ostracized and has trouble at home, and that phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely, comes into play as Rex finds all kinds of connections, shall we say, with these monsters, I'm making air quotes, dude, you can't see it, with these monsters in San Francisco. So it's perfect for monster talk because it's full of unique original monsters, and it's scientific. What do you think of that?
4: Does it have Bigfoot in it?
3: It does not have Bigfoot in it. Bigfoot's an existing monster, no Bigfoot.
4: What about uh, Chupacabra? Is, is, are they actually tracking Chupacabra?
3: No, they're not tracking Chupacabra, man. These are new original Monsters—they're—they're they're crazy and gross and disgusting—but they are not a slightly hairless mutated dog from southern Mexico. They're not.
4: Okay, same. okay, okay. Let me tell you something. I—I am—I consider myself something of an expert on monsters, even—even even at this hour of the night. And I have to tell you, uh, Bigfoot, Chupacabra—these are really popular. Uh, what I—I I think if you would take your your work that you've got here, and just sort of change it a little bit and make the cops Bigfoot, and they're chasing a chupacabra, you may have a a thing that will really fly.
3: Okay, look, if I did that, I could get on the A&E channel with a black-and-white TV show that goes green at night, and I would look at other people and say, Dude, did you feel that? Dude, did you hear that? But that's not what I'm going for. I'm trying to come up with something new and original with monsters that are actually based in genetics and science and real cops and that kind of thing. Not Bigfoot chasing chupacabra.
4: Okay, okay. I'm not, I'm not an uh, expert on the writing books and stuff. But I, I have to tell you that what seems to really work is if you take an existing monster that everybody knows and you add glitter to it. So could you maybe make some sparkling Bigfoot?
3: No. <laughs> I can't I can't make a sparkling Bigfoot. There's no crazy vampire rewrite of the milieu that's been around for hundreds of years. And I dude, if Bigfoot sparkled, I think that would go wrong. it would be like a phosphorescent mushroom eating Bigfoot lurking about the southern forests of the Castro district. I don't think that's gonna work out. I think we go new monsters, new oh, monsters
4: Dude! No, Sparkly Bigfoot, he partners with Yeti, and then they're going to solve this crime about the Chupacabra. And then Yeti's like, I'm getting too old for this. Sh-. But they keep doing it, and they fight that Chupacabra until they win. I am telling you, if you just make a few changes, this could be totally sweet.
3: Well, you're actually depressing the hell out of me because knowing today's marketplace, that would probably work extremely well and would get a primetime Friday slot on the Sci Fi Channel. But the book's already done. Nocturnal's done. It's hardcover, it's in stores. It's e-book. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any, any brick-and-mortar bookstore. So it's out. So I just I can't make any changes to it.
4: Can I tell you that you should not call me for advice if you've already got the book on the shelf?
3: Well, I was, I was just trying to pimp out your audience, that's all. I'm thinking they might like monsters. Maybe they like skepticism. Maybe they'd like some skep horror monsters.
4: Okay, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will tell them about your book. I will give them the information. But I have to say, they're probably going to be looking for that sparkling Bigfoot book. And uh, I can't blame them.
3: Well, but, uh, hopefully Stephanie Meyer can write the sparkling Bigfoot book, and then all all audiences are happy. But I just I can't I can't do it. I just can't. Well,
4: well good luck, and I, I my only other advice is, uh, dude, seriously, learn about time zones.
3: <laughs> all right. Well, you know you don't need sleep. What is sleep all about, anyways? I, I didn't mean to wake you up, but this is a great idea. I'm telling you, this is the greatest thing ever.
4: I will pass it along.
3: Thanks, sir.
4: <laughs> You're welcome monster Talk thanks for listening to monster talk the science show about monsters today's special bonus episode featured interviews with director daniel netheim and author scott sigler we'll be back to our regular format in two weeks when we tackle one of the most surprisingly explicit monster topics the homunculus don't miss it monster talk is an official podcast of skeptic magazine The opinions you hear on this show are not necessarily those of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Monster Talk's theme song is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening.